Hey, y'all. Happy Black History Month. Even though at We the Black People every month is Black History Month, I did use the original inspiration for Negro History Week, which was the precursor to our current Black History Month as inspiration for the two focuses of this episode. One of the main motives behind Carter G. Woodson's original Negro History Week was to combat racism in American education. Seeing the way that American education cultivated anti-blackness and seemed to treat history as if black people had never done anything, he wanted to teach students that black people had contributed to America and the world. Since show one, I've been talking about how black history is often mistaught, misunderstood, or even just ignored. So to start, me and my guest, Matthew Reisman, a history teacher who has developed and is continuing to develop a specifically anti-racist A-push curriculum. We're going to talk about racism and anti-racism in today's history education. Second, we're going to address the question of why black voters shifted from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party in the early 20th century. To answer that question, the most common high school A-Push textbook perpetuates racial stereotypes rather than going off of what historians proved decades ago. And that one racist explanation for black voting behavior shapes how people and politicians talk about and cultivate the black vote to this day which is exactly what Black History Month was designed to fight against. So, this episode, we're going to look at the racist stereotype perpetuated in schools and what historical evidence actually says about why Black voters now vote for the Democratic Party. Also, there was some construction in Matt's school that you'll hear towards the end that I couldn't fully edit out, so sorry about that, y'all. Let's get started. Welcome to my show, Matt. Happy to be here. Thanks. I'm so glad you came. I'm super excited about your program, Anti-Racist A-Push. So let's just begin there. Where did it come from? And tell us a little bit about it. Well, I've been teaching for 12 years and most of those years, AP World and A-Push. So I've always had an interest in history my whole life. The Anti-Racist A-Push stuff actually came out of grad school, which I didn't start until I was a few years into teaching. And I decided I wanted to get my master's specifically in history and then Where I found my most interest was actually in the Black Studies, U.S. history classes, especially as a social studies teacher. I definitely get, I don't know, kind of like a, almost like a corny way, but I get really like passionate about the stated values that our country is founded on, right? I mean, I'm teaching these to teenagers five times a day, year after year after year, and I really do believe in the, the words of the founding documents. And of course, I think obviously as you go through history, it's pretty obvious that Some of the words and the promises were never actually even intended to be for African-Americans. And that's obviously infuriating. So you combine this love for the founding documents and the founding promises of the United States with the fury over how unfair these promises have been played out over time. So anyway, I think that's really where I, I started to get more interest into the Black Studies program in grad school. But anyway, so I'm teaching a push. And I'm taking these grad classes, and it is just clear semester after semester what the textbook, specifically the American Pageant, which is the number one best-selling A-Push textbook. I mean, we don't have a like national history curriculum like a lot of countries have. Each state can make their own curriculum. So the closest thing we have to an actual national curriculum that millions of kids take, I don't know how many kids take A-Push a lot, is AP U.S. History. And so the most popular A-Push textbook is pretty significant what that says. Like this is 
the most singular voice that we're telling our teenagers about our country's past. And repeatedly, chapter after chapter, A push has just got a more conservative view than actual historians. And I think that's a little bit dumb because we're calling it history class. I think we should be allowing the voices of historians to be a lot louder. And it just so happens that I'm also very passionate about teaching my students from an anti-racist lens. And that's exactly what the majority of historians are putting out there anyway, right? So I, I don't feel like I'm like this you know, teacher who's trying to push an agenda on students. I'm like, hey, this isn't from me. I just want to expose you to more historians than the textbook. So anyway, that started to impact my lesson plans over and over. Like, oh, I'd read something for class. I got to add this to the curriculum. You know, this isn't in the textbook. This isn't in the curriculum guide. So it just kind of started piling up. And then it was obviously uh, this summer, this spring, I think schools all across America, especially with the murder of George Floyd, schools were really kind of looking at the curriculum saying, we got to do better. What are we doing? And my school reached out to me knowing that I had a passion for social justice and anti-racism and said, could you put something together um, to share with a few other teachers about our history curriculum? And then I just started putting some stuff online and then kind of caught on with a few teachers around the country. And so I just kept putting more of my resources online. So that's where Anti-Racist A-Push comes from. Wow. When I reached out to you, I did not realize that Anti-Racist A-Push was such a new public thing. I know as a teacher, there are so many great resources out there. Like Tolerance.org is is an amazing one or the Zen Education Project. And obviously they have way more resources and, and time and experts to put into their lessons. But I do know as an AP teacher, students are trusting us and looking to us to make sure we're teaching them the curriculum that they need to be successful. And it's hard to go to some of these anti-racist education organizations because they'll put together a a whole two-week brilliant unit on something that, like, okay, if I pace out all the stuff the kids have got to know for a test, you know what I mean? Like, I have like one day to teach this. And so all these resources online are awesome, but there's like so much that it's like, practically, how can I do this? And so I'm like, well, I'm trying to take the best anti-racist stuff from historians. And I'm also trying to teach us a push class. Here's how I do it. I think that's why it's a useful site. So to kind of frame the importance of this, or even just to see the way that history is taught very differently in high school than the way that historians actually talk about history it's easier to see it in practice. And it turns out that one of the things that mainly influenced your creation of this is also something that I was super interested in. And there's there's this one sentence in the American pageant that's just super offensive. Let's start there. I would say there are more egregious problems in the American pageant textbook. I think Dr. Ibram X. Kindy was on Today Show or uh, one of the big television programs going through some maps that the American pageant had and some of the wording that American pageant has surrounding slavery. So there are some like kind of famous things that are probably you know maybe more offensive, especially when it comes to history of slavery. But this one quote about 20th century politics jumped out at me the first time I ever read it and first time I was ever teaching it, you know, before I even started the, the grad project. But the quote from the American pageant, specifically in the chapter on the New Deal, let me start here. The A-Push curriculum says that all students need to know that during the Depression, uh, African-Americans for the first time in the country's history switched their allegiance overall from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. And 
I mean, it's pretty shocking. From the 1870s with the passage of the 15th Amendment, all the way to the election in 1932, there's not great stats on it, but our best guess is that 75%, usually more, of all Black voters supported the Republican Party. So there's no cross-section in America, rich and poor, men, women, Protestant, Catholic. There is no cross-section in America that votes so together. So the fact that 75% of Black Americans are supporting Republicans, and normally more like 80, 90%, that's a you know, huge number. That's every election from after the Civil War to 1932. And then all of a sudden, 1936, it flips, and 75% of Black voters switch to the Democratic Party and have never turned back, right? And since the 60s, Republicans are averaging about 9% of the Black vote. So there is this, in between 1932, 1936, there is this huge shift. And so the College Board tells kids, you need to know that that shift happens. The College Board doesn't typically give explanations Right. It just here's a fact you got to memorize, you know, while you're learning how to write the essays. And then the teacher and the students will turn to their textbook for analysis. Okay, like why did that happen? And typically, something that is so important that it gets a line in the curriculum guide will have a page, if not more, of detail kind of explaining the different viewpoints on that historical fact. And this fact about the switch of Black Americans to the Democratic Party only has this one sentence in American pageant. And it says, Blacks, several million of whom had appreciated welcome relief checks, had by now shaken off their traditional allegiance to the Republican Party. That's it. It's the end of the section. So if I'm a high school student or, you know, even a teacher, right? Teachers were relying on these books, especially the first time we're going through the course. So, okay, we got to know that Black Americans switched to the Democratic Party. Why? Well, there's only one reason listed, and that is because of welfare. That jumped off the page. First, I'm like, whoa, you know, that sounds dated. You know what I mean? Like, that sounds racist. Do historians really think that? Right? Like, that's in this textbook. I know this, this textbook's kind of old-fashioned, but dang. And so that was one thing where I, where I got to grad school and I had to think about a thesis topic. I wasn't getting an education degree. I was getting a history degree. But still, I was like, this is still significant. This is our most common textbook. Is that true? Do his, like what historians agree with that? Because it just sounds super wrong. And the most infuriating thing was that historians don't think that. That's not what their research proves. Which begs the question, why does a textbook say that? Yes, exactly. So I'm like, uh, historians don't think this. And I'm not saying, oh, in our new uh, woke era, all the historians in 2017 decided, no. Historians haven't written a ton about this since like the 70s and 80s when the situation kind of got put to rest. No, that's not why Black Americans switched to the Democratic Party. And historians haven't even written a lot about it since because it's kind of a settled deal. We know that that's wrong and that's racist. And yet here it is. Why is this in a history textbook? Can we even call it a history textbook if that's what it says? Because historians don't think that. So now what are we teaching the children? We're teaching the children, I don't know, uh, it's like patriotism class, white nationalism class, because that's not true. None of the primary sources back that up. The historians don't actually think that. So if we're putting it in the class, anyway, it's, it's very frustrating. And it's something that we still hear. One quote that I use in the paper, just because it was happening at the same time, you know, like Mitt Romney says when he lost, 
right after he loses in 2012, he says, well, Barack Obama used the old playbook of basically giving things to African-Americans. So African-Americans are, of course, Mitt Romney's like, you know, what could I do? African-Americans are going to vote for the Democrats. The Democrats give them stuff. Even more recently, Donald Trump's platinum plan for Black America seemed to be trying to buy the Black vote under the assumption that Black people vote for people who give them stuff. And that's how politicians have been talking and treating the Black vote for years. You go back, Nixon is saying this about Kennedy. He's saying, well, Kennedy bought the Black vote, so that's why I lost in 1960. And you go back, politicians are continuously saying this from the 30s through the 60s and 70s before historians shut this down. And of course, it's infuriating because it is totally taking away the agency of tens of millions of people in this country who are very informed and very passionate and dedicated their lives to politics and and writing arguments in Jet Magazine, Ebony, um, The Crisis, NAACP, The Chicago Defender, all the Black press. I mean, people dedicated their whole careers to following Black politics just to have these politicians and even these textbooks repeating this garbage that takes away all agency from Black voters. You're writing off, but well, Black voters can be bought. I think that's what really got me about like the scent is it's just one sentence. So it's like very subtle, but it just keeps perpetuating the stereotype that like black people only want stuff given to them. They don't. That's the only thing they care about. That's all they've been seeking since forever. Exactly. And by saying that the politicians who say that or the older from a more racist past when historians were saying that or, you know, political pundits were saying that that keeps them from having to dig into the real painful truth. Why are Republicans leaving the Republican Party? Because it's a really, really important question. Frederick Douglass, the, the most prominent Black political figure in the late 19th century, he calls the president, Ulysses S. Grant, he calls him like the savior. It's like, this is the refuge and the savior of my people. He says, the Republican Party is the ship and all else is the sea. There are some Black voices at the turn of the 20th century saying, are we always just going to vote for the Republicans? Are we just going to guarantee, give them our vote? Frederick Douglass is like, yes. I mean, at this time, the Democratic Party in the early 20th century, late 19th century, all the way through the mid 20th century is the party of white supremacy, catering to pamphlets that are put out by the KKK. The Democratic Party is passionately defending this stuff. So how bad did the Republican Party have to get for Black Americans to leave the ship, as Frederick Douglass says? And so really the, the research from the historians, from the primary sources, very clear. By the way, this is, this is not a pro-democratic party thesis. I think maybe someone could criticize this. Oh, this is like a little bit too political to talk about in school. But in the research, the democratic party of the 1930s looks real bad. The truth is, in the 1930s, there is no political party who is fighting for racial justice at all. There is horrible, horrible evil. And then like, a little bit less horrible, horrible evil. That's the choice for Black Americans in the 1930s and the 1920s, and largely the 1940s as well. So this isn't like, look at how great the Democratic Party is. It's not like Black voters like, oh, the Democratic Party is so wonderful. In fact, most voters don't change their party affiliation to Democrat until into the 1950s. So a lot of Black families are remaining Republican in their voter registration And there's a lot of talk in the Black press and Black magazines. 
people keep having hope that the Republican Party is going to go back to what it was. So people are remaining, you know, to identify as Republicans, but voting for Democrats. But I mean, this starts especially in, in the 1920s, the Republican Party is openly courting counties that are run by the KKK. KKK has a big explosion in popularity after World War I. And the KKK clearly identifies in most northern, these places like Midwest places, right? We're talking Ohio, Indiana specifically. They identify the Republican Party as the party for them. And the Republicans are happy to take their vote. And so Black voters are pretty much left without a home. I do think a quote that I love that explains this is from W.E.B. Du Bois. And Du Bois, I think this is a really important quote because Du Bois is not a Democrat at this point. He's actually writing a letter to the NAACP's publication. The point of the letter is do not support the Democratic Party. So this is not a rah-rah celebration of the Democratic Party. But he does say this, speaking about FDR, he says, Roosevelt won the Negro vote not simply as been widely charged by almsgiving. Roosevelt was not simply a Santa Claus. He recognized for the first time in American history that Negroes were Americans and not simply problems. He insisted in law and administration that the Negroes be treated as human beings to an extent never before attempted in American history. And therefore, Negroes flocked to his support. This is W.E.B. Du Bois. How are we going to argue? Du Bois has got his pulse on Black politics. By this point, he's saying the Democrats are too tied to the South, which is true. I mean, still JFK in the 1960s is going around the South, smiling and shaking hands with horrible segregationists, right? Men who are saying horrible things about supporting white supremacy in the South and their kids are never going to go to school with black kids. And Kennedy is going around shaking hands and smiling with them because he's, Democrats are still reliant on the white Southern vote at that point. And so for that point, Du Bois is saying, screw the Democrats and the Republicans. But he is acknowledging the reason why African-Americans switched to the Democratic Party is because FDR had some blind spots. FDR refused to try to stop lynching, for example. That was too controversial. There was a bill that said, you know, we should stop lynching in the South. And FDR was like, no, I, I can't support that because then all the Southern Democrats won't support me. I mean, there's no champion of civil rights. But what the New Deal does is it doesn't specifically help African-Americans, but it doesn't exclude African-Americans from a lot of the benefits. A lot of New Deal programs have problems, but the fact that some of the New Deal programs helped Black families and white families, that was enough. Because the Republican Party, I mean, both parties were doing nothing about the crisis in the South. And there was that one thing, and that's really what Du Bois points to. A lot of Black leaders at the time point to the Roosevelts were not as bad as the Republicans. And that's the painful truth that chalking up the shift in Black votership to handouts and welfare ignores the fact that neither party was trying to give Black people anything. Both of them were pretty comfortable with white supremacy. The party of the New Deal just seemed to be slightly less of an obstacle towards racial equality in that it didn't exclude them. Right. And even the Democratic Party in the South was actively excluding them. But in the North, they weren't as much. I mean, it's a terrible situation. Like, I'm, that's what I'm saying. This is not like a pro-Democratic Party research paper, right? This is shame on both political parties. But it is important to give Black voters the agency and to acknowledge the debates in the Black community at the time. And it is a fact 
that Black Americans vote based on issues of basic human rights and social justice. And you can look at the House of Representatives and how it flip-flopped back and forth throughout the 20th century. And white Americans will vote for the party in power as long as unemployment rate is low. When the economy is good, you have the support of white voters. When the economy dips, then white voters are going to support the other party. It's the number one issue. Through the wars, through threats about communism, all of this stuff that's going on in the 20th century, white voters are very focused on the economy. Obviously, Black voters are as well, but it's not the number one priority. You can predict the white vote based on the economy. You cannot look at the House of Representatives and predict, based on the economy, who Black voters are going to support. And so my research was, like I said, mostly looking at the Black press and what was the Black press talking about during election seasons. And it was always, which party is prepared to defend the Constitution, specifically referring to the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments that were passed after the Civil War by the most anti-racist Congress we've ever had. And then Reconstruction ends and these amendments are totally ignored for decades, right? Not until the 1960s. There's about 90 years where the Constitution, 14th and 15th Amendments specifically, is totally disregarded. And throughout this time, 5% of African Americans in the South are allowed to vote, even though the Constitution guarantees the right for 100% of African Americans to vote. So it's not a good time. And this is what the Black press is very concerned about. So what does the president, whoever the candidate is, what do they think about integration? A big fight over integration in the military. And as soon as Harry Truman signs the executive order to integrate the military at the end of the 1940s, if the black vote is not exactly sure in the 1930s, and yes, does switch over during the New Deal, it is Harry Truman's integration of the military. That's the most bold move that a president had made for basic human justice for African-Americans since Reconstruction. So it had been decades. We're closing in 80 years after the Civil War. It was the first time a president stuck his neck out politically for basic justice. And from that point on, I mean, African-American voters never look back. And that makes sense. And it's so important because just boiling it down to welfare and relief checks and things like that ignores the long history that Black Americans have been fighting for equality since day one of America. And that's what they're always thinking of when we're voting is advancement and who's going to help push us forward a little bit more, not just where we're going to get free money from. Yeah, that was 100% accurate. That is backed up by the primary sources and all historians. I do want to say there is one historian who wrote a book called Farewell to the Party of Lincoln. Her name is Nancy Weiss. And her thesis is that Black Americans switched to the Democratic Party out of economic necessity. So I said no historians. And when she said that, all of a sudden, all these historians wrote reviews about it, saying she's wrong, she's overlooking this and that. But there is a historian who says that. So to me, as a historian, you really got to deal with that. Okay, what arguments does she put out there? And she's very true that she's basically like, hey, the Democrats and FDR are not the party of justice. She goes on, she talks about Social Security leaves out domestic workers and sharecroppers. So the golden jewel of the New Deal overlooks a lot of Black Americans. Of course, FHA housing loans do so much damage to Black communities. Integrated neighborhoods in big cities in the North get bulldozed to put up housing projects that only allow white families. 
So like we go backwards. So her point is just, look at FDR won't even sign anti-lynching legislation. How can you say that black Americans were interested in civil rights when they decided to sign up for FDR? And so that is her thesis. But at another point in her career, she writes about Woodrow Wilson. And I think this is very telling because he was the first Democrat. So Woodrow Wilson gets elected in 1912. And he's the first Democrat that some prominent Black Americans vocally support. W.E.B. Du Bois is one. William Monroe Trotter. These are Black leaders who are willing to give the Democrats a try. Long story short, they had a lot of hope that Teddy Roosevelt was going to be a champion of civil rights, and they were kind of disappointed. Teddy Roosevelt court-martialed an entire unit of Black soldiers for a really bad move. You can look up the Brownsville incident. And W.E.B. Du Bois says, hey, the clock has struck 12 on the Republican Party. Let's give the Democrats a chance. And Nancy Weiss actually writes about that too. Really interesting article. And she goes in depth about how disappointed Black leaders were with Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is a terrible president in terms of racial equity and justice. The first movie ever at the White House, Birth of a Nation, that gets a lot of attention. And that's just one little thing. Basically, any government positions that have been integrated, Woodrow Wilson is going to fire the Black employees, hire all white employees. Woodrow Wilson gets an F for racial equity. And she writes about that. And she writes about how the Black press was so disappointed and so angry. And so in her own research, she's like, wow, the Black press, the Black voter is not interested in economics, was less interested about the global war that was breaking out. So all these dramatic events are happening while Woodrow Wilson's president and the Black press is focusing on lynching. So even Nancy Weiss, the one historian who argues that, well, Black Americans switched to the Democratic Party out of economic necessity, in her other research points out, no, that's not what drives Black Americans to the polls. So I do think it's fair. I said no historians support that. I found one and seven others to drown her out and say that she was wrong. And even her, in other research, points out that Black Americans vote based off of civil rights. So that's one thing I would edit to my own statement. To be fair, in case you got any huge Nancy Weiss fans out there who are like, I read a farewell to the party of Lincoln. And that's what we need, anti-racist A-Push, to ask the complex questions that dig into the hard and sometimes painful truths of history. That's how we break down race-based stereotypes and teach the truth. Yay! Yay. Uh, If we call it history class, we might as well be teaching the kids historians. And that's what I always like try to emphasize if people ask me about it. These are not like my ideas. I'm just a humble, babbling history teacher. Yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about basic human rights, but I'm leaving it to the actual professional historians. And if you just get out of these lame textbooks in high schools, which are pretty much written so that they can be sold to states and conservative state legislatures are deciding what they think is important about history. They're not historians. In fact, you look at meetings of some of these, some minutes of meetings in Texas and people are trying to decide what should be in the history curriculum. And someone suggests, well, you know, this historian actually says, and people like audibly laugh. They're like, historian? Those socialists? What does a historian got to do with history class, right? Like, I want, this is like a quote, some guy in Texas gets applause from everyone at the meeting. I just want my kid to grow up knowing that the worst day in America 
is better than the best day in any other country on earth. And everyone like claps. People vote for representatives who make sure their history curriculum is about why America is the greatest. It just makes so much sense because these textbooks clearly have an agenda. So you might as well fight back with an agenda of truth because historians have the agenda of truth. And I, I definitely oversimplify it. I mean, historians write textbooks. And I think every textbook, there's some textbooks that I really do like. And historians who are smarter than me write textbooks. But they typically don't like write the whole thing. They get asked to write this passage or that passage. And the textbook companies take something that they had published 20, 30 years ago, and they fill that in. I don't think they have this agenda to promote racism, right? But they have an agenda to sell textbooks. That's it. And then state legislatures buy the ones that make them the happiest. And unfortunately, we're not to a point in our nation where the ones that we think are the most valuable are the ones with the most truth. There are still a lot of people who think the ones that are most valuable make our kids love America. A-Push changed its curriculum a few years ago, and they took out some of the names of the presidents. Like, we don't need to memorize 45 white guys' names. Not every president's so important, and there's a few people of color, more women get into the curriculum. And people freaked out. The state of Oklahoma banned AP U.S. history for a year because it was like communism. They were teaching kids to hate America. Dr. Ben Carson, a favorite quote my students talk about when I share with them is, a push is going to make kids want to sign up for ISIS because they were teaching less about the presidents, more about people of color. And if you learn about the history of people of color, our kids are going to want to be terrorists. I find the exact opposite. Teaching gives me a lot of hope because I know kids are ready for honest conversations. And if I just start class beginning of the year asking students, what makes a good country? Describe the politics of a country that you want to live in. Let's fantasize about the perfect country. And kids from all over. I love teaching here at East Kentwood. We are the most diverse school in the state, the seventh most diverse school in the United States, actually, here in Kentwood, Michigan. So we got kids literally from all over the world, 80 languages spoken in our school. You ask kids from anywhere, what does a good country look like? They're going to talk about opportunity, and they're going to talk about how that opportunity should be available to everyone, and about how people with natural abilities who work really hard should be able to get ahead, and the rules should be applied to everybody. I don't have to teach kids that that's what makes a good country. I ask them what makes a good country. Then they come up with that. And you know what turns out? Guess what? That's basically what the Constitution said, right? I mean, that's what the preamble said. That's what the Declaration of Independence says. So I don't need to have this fake nationalist class where I indoctrinate kids to love the Constitution and love the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, and teaching real history like that is how you make kids want to do the work to make America better, more equitable, and fulfill its promises. How you get social justice warriors and people willing to fight against racism rather than just accept America as it is. Being the first Black History Month that I've had this Black History podcast, I have been super excited on social media, including the fact that I made an Instagram. You now follow me on Facebook and on Instagram. It's at We the Black People Pod on both. And as always, if you like this show or you like this episode, please share it. Your word of mouth is the biggest way the show audience grows. So see you next month. Women's History Month, another thing I am super excited about. All power to all people, y'all.